You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, So we got to see a politician's dick pic this week. Not the dick pics we were hoping to see. Well, I don't think any of us were really hoping to see Donald Trump's dick pics. We were salivating at the prospect. No, we're not salivating at the prospect of seeing Donald Trump's dick pics. What's the opposite of salivating about something? We were throwing up in our mouths a little bit about the prospect of seeing Donald Trump's dick pics. And there are some political dick pics out this week, but they are not Donald Trump's dick pics. They haven't been released by Stormy Daniels. Not yet. They're the dick pics and dirty texts of Cross Coburn, a 19-year-old who was elected to the city council in the small town of Groves, Texas, last November. Groves, Texas, population 15,733, the beating heart of Jefferson County, Texas, which borders on Louisiana. Named for Thomas Jefferson, slave-owning author of the Declaration of Independence, surprisingly enough, and not Jefferson Davis, slave-owning president of the Confederacy. Anyway, Coburn, who is gay and single, got on Grindr, the gay hookup app, and chatted with someone who turned around and sent screen grabs of their chats and the photos Coburn shared with him to local media outlets and to other members of the Grove City Council and to the mayor. Whoever sent the photos, presumably the person Coburn was chatting with, included this note. Is this any proper behavior of a councilman to represent himself online or a dating app? I felt the city council should be made aware of the situation. So Coburn was set up. This was a sting, a hit job, a politically motivated grinder chat. It also amounts to an act of revenge porn, which happens to be a crime in Texas. You know, first I got to say, shame on you, KFDM, Fox 4 News, Southwest Texas, for aiding and abetting a revenge pornographer. Fox 4 News showed the photos, not the dick pics themselves, but what are clearly nude photos of Cross Coburn that was sent to the station in an effort to humiliate and drive Cross Coburn from office. They are aiding and abetting, again, this revenge pornographer. And then I got to say, good for you, Cross Coburn for sticking up for yourself in an interview with KFDM Fox 4 News. Good for you for refusing to be sex-shamed or gay-shamed or nude-pick-shamed or pick-up-app-shamed. I felt like I was being harassed, discriminated against, because I'm a young gay man on city council. That is my personal life, and no one should know about it. And, you know, I'm sorry if anyone, you know, took it the wrong way, but it really was nothing more complex than... It's just my personal life. <laughs> don't see anything wrong with what I did, and I don't think I should be judged for what happened. Fox 4 News also reached out to the mayor of Groves, Texas, for comment. Here's what Mr. Mayor had to say. It's definitely unconventional behavior. We spoke by phone with Groves Mayor Brad Bailey. He called the photos disturbing. This, you know, there's uh, nothing illegal or anything that uh, you know there is to pursue at this time. If I may quibble, Mr. Mayor, Your Honor, Cross Coburn was engaged in thoroughly conventional behavior. 60 plus percent of young adults have sent and received sex messages and nude photographs. And nearly 30 percent of straight couples now meet online, according to a study conducted by researchers at Stanford University. Meeting online is the second most common way for opposite sex couples to meet, trailing meeting through friends by just a few percentage points. 
meeting online long ago, overtook meeting in college, at work, through family, or in high school. Looking at the trend lines, meeting online will be the most popular way for straight couples to meet within a few years. It's already the most popular way for same-sex couples to meet. 70% of same-sex couples met online or via hookup apps like Grindr, with meeting on bars coming in a distant second, with just 20% of same-sex couples reporting they first met in a gay bar. And there actually is something illegal here for you to pursue, Mr. Mayor. Put your police department, your best man on it, your best Law & Order SVU squad, because again, revenge pornography, and Cross Corman is a victim here of revenge pornography, it is a crime in Texas. Not what he did, what was done to him. <sighs> As if the mayor's comments were aggravating enough. The reporter went out, did a little vox pop, spoke to some people in the street, man on the street and woman on the street, about their city councilman. They're setting examples. That's how I feel. Uh, someone that is in a, a, a sitting uh, position, to me, is someone we need to look up to. Set an example. That is something that a 19-year-old gay elected official is supposed to do, because if 19-year-old gay elected officials in small towns in Texas don't set a good example for us all. How will the 71-year-old sexual predator Texas help send to the White House ever learn how to behave himself? All right, before we dive into this week's Savage Lovecast, I will be doing Savage Love live Friday, March 23rd in Minneapolis, Minnesota at the Pentagenist Theater, Saturday, March 24th in Madison, Wisconsin at the Barrymore Theater, and Sunday, March 25th at the Royal Oak outside Detroit Theater in Michigan. Go to savagelovecast.com slash events for tickets. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, March 23rd, 24th, 25th, Minneapolis, Madison, and Royal Oak. Join me. We're going to have a good time. All right, coming up on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as long and no ads. Alana Massey joins me to discuss SESTA, a bill working its way through Congress that everybody should know about and everybody should do something about. That's on the Magnum, on the micro, free edition of the Savage Lovecast. Tons of your cue, lots of my A. All that coming up right now. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a trans guy living in the Pacific Northwest, um, and I'm calling for, I guess, a pep talk. I've heard you talk before about guys losing their hair and about how it's better to shave it off, shave it off and go with it, and I, I'm doing that. But all of the very few representations of bald men that I see in the world are like The Rock, Vin Diesel, like these very sort of aggro, dominant, super masculine dudes, and I'm like a submissive sort of feminine guy. And so I guess I'm just, um, yeah, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about bald guys and how they can be sexy, because that would be really great. Okay. Thanks. You know what's sexy? In addition to baldness on dudes, confidence in anyone is sexy. And someone who's trying to hide who they are, whatever it is about who they are from the world, that's not sexy. That, tells people I'm not confident in myself. And so, you know, covering up or getting a toupee or combing it the fuck over and pulling it the fuck back and shellacking it into a panel like Donald fucking Trump doesn't scream confidence, doesn't scream sexy. Shaving your head and being like, this is me, that screams sexy. You cite some examples of sexy bald guys. I think you mentioned The Rock and I don't remember who else. Picard is sexy. Here's a 50-year-old pop culture reference for the kids out there. Telly Savalas. Look him up. A lot of people thought he was sexy. I didn't think he was sexy. Not because of the baldness. 
because of everything from the baldness down. But there were people out there back in the day who thought Kojak was a sex symbol. Your question is, where are the submissive bald, sexy, sex symbol guys? Well, get thee to some kink porn go. There are lots of examples out there in kink porn land. I don't know how hardcore your submissiveness is, but in a lot of BDSM circles, shaving the sub's head is one marker of submission. He gives up his hair and you come with your hair already given the fuck up. So if you want some examples of sexy, subby, bald guys out there, watch some kink porn. If you want some examples of just sexy, bald guys out there in the world, go outside, look around. You will see guys who are bald and who are rocking it, not combing it over, coming around the back and shellacking it. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 27-year-old from Canada, and I'm calling with a question about dumping somebody. So I've been dating this man for almost four years, and we have a great relationship, and I, and I care about him so much. But for several reasons, I don't see him as the person that I ultimately want to marry. And so I feel like I need to end the relationship. But the catch is, like, right now his father is dying of cancer and has two months to live. So obviously my boyfriend's, like, upset and going through a really tough time already at the moment. So I feel like ending a relationship right now would be a really shitty thing to do. So what do I do? Like, obviously I should wait and support him through this tough time. But, like, how long do I wait? I know it's never a convenient time to dump somebody, but I, I feel like a terrible person. So what do I do? Help. No one wants to be dumped. However you dump someone, whenever you dump someone who doesn't want to be dumped, they're going to pick apart that dumping and find fault. They're going to tell you, you dump them in the wrong way at the wrong time. So whatever you do, dump him now, two months before his father dies, that's just cruel and insensitive. Stick with him through this traumatic experience as he leans on you and bonds with you and feels a deeper and stronger emotional connection to you and then wait till after the funeral plus another month or two to dump him, that's not going to be the right way to do it either. You just have to pick your horns here. Are you going to be the terrible person who dumped him while his father was dying? Are you going to be the terrible person who dumped him after his father died? I think when you're looking at the lesser of two evils, you should go with the less evil option. And I think the latter is the lesser of those two evils. You like this guy. You love this guy. He is not the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with. He is someone you can spend the next four or five months with. During that time, make no promises. Accept no proposals. Give him as much love and support as you can during this tough time. If he brings up the indefinite future, if during this traumatic time in his life, he starts to think about his own mortality, he starts to think about who he wants to spend the rest of his life with, if he starts to think about who he wants with him as a partner when it's his turn to shuffle off his mortal coil, as they say, he may look at you in a different way. He may even, as some people will during a crisis like this, propose to you. And at that moment, you say, Look, we can't talk about the future right now. Let's just be in the present. I don't want you asking me something for the wrong reasons at the wrong time because you're traumatized about this. Let's just wait. Put the future on hold and let's live in the moment. I'm here for you right now. Let's be there together for your dad right now. Just shut that down. And then two, three months later, when you end it, He's going to be angry. He's going to be hurt. 
There's no way to avoid that anger and hurt. There is no way to frictionlessly stick the dismount when someone does not wish to be dismounted. And you're just going to have to stare it down. And you're just going to have to be the bad guy at that time. You can be the bad guy one way or the other. There's a lesser of two evil choices to make here. And it would be by far the lesser evil for you to wait a few months or five months to end this relationship. Sorry for you. Sorry for your boyfriend. Very sorry for his dad. Hey, Dan. I'm a straight married guy in my mid-30s. My wife and I have been married for five years uh, and together in total for 10 years. We had our first child almost five months ago, and then my wife's mom passed away almost two months ago after a battle with cancer. My wife was extremely close with her mom, and during her grieving process, she has understandably experienced waves of depression. Her sex drive has declined substantially, and she says 90% of the decline is because of her mom's death, not our new lives as parents. She has already worked with a grief counselor and plans on doing more grief counseling soon. We've talked about our current situation in depth, and my wife says that in hopes of jumpstarting her libido, she is game to keep having regular sex, even though her heart isn't really in it right now, and the sex is still a bit physically painful for her after childbirth. While I appreciate this, this offer, it's obviously not an ideal romantic arrangement, and I myself wouldn't enjoy this kind of going-through-the-motions, fake-it-till-you-make-it type of sex. As an alternative, we could just stop having sex for a while until her libido picks up again, but we have no idea how long that might take. So our question is, which option do you think will get us back to our mutually satisfying sex life more quickly? Wait it out for a while and just enjoy each other's company with no expectation of sex or keep having sex that might not be that enjoyable for either of us in the hopes that her sex drive picks up sooner. I understand what your wife is going through. My mother and I were very close. And when my mother passed away, I was a wreck and I was a wreck for weeks and months. I remember what it was like to start trying to have sex again and kind of not be fully present and almost feel like you're betraying the memory of your mother by allowing yourself to experience joy and pleasure again. And that kind of joy and pleasure, uh, that particular kind when it's so rooted in the other and so tied to the moment. And, and you sometimes pop out of sex because sex is so intensely. If you're having sex with someone you really care about and you are really in a groove. It's so intensely about the moment and there's nothing like the death of a parent or God forbid a child to make you feel like moments are precious and fleeting and we can be taken away from those that we love or those that we love can be taken away from us at any moment. And there were times I just willed myself to do it and went through the motions and caught a fucking groove and was glad that I went through the motions and glad to catch that fucking groove. And it was a little bit of going through the motions and catching grooves on the regular that helped me get back to initiating sex or responding positively when sex was initiated without falling out of it, without those experiences being tainted by my grief. So that's a vote for the going through the motions. Your wife also has a problem with pain during sex after childbirth. And my hunch is that you and the wife may be defining sex as intercourse. And what you need to do right now while you're going through the motions, and maybe you'll feel a little bit less conflicted about this, is take that physically uncomfortable sex off the fucking menu right now. Go through the motions with some outer course. Go through the motions with some mutual masturbation. Don't have the kind of penetrative sex that your wife 
five months after the birth of your child and congratulations. And isn't life like that? Giving you the good shit and the bad shit sometimes at once or one great thing and then a terrible thing, one right after the fucking other. Don't have penetrative sex. Don't have PIV. Have sex. Be intimate. Masturbate together. Use toys. Do oral. You're understandably and to your credit, sir, hesitant to have sex with your wife right now that she may find emotionally painful or awkward because of her grief, but also physically painful because of the lingering after effects of the trauma that is childbirth. Well, my vote is have some of that awkward, perhaps painful sex tainted by grief. Go through the motions so your wife can catch that groove again like I did after the death of my mother and don't have that painful sex vaginal intercourse, avoid that for the moment and decoupling those things. You can have the go through the motion, catch a groove sex. You can be intimate. You can have sex that isn't penetrative sex. That isn't PIV sex. And so that you don't have these two negatives, perhaps reinforcing each other, not just potentially risky, emotionally painful sex, but then physically painful sex. And that those pains feeding off each other, fueling each other, take the physical pain off the table by taking PIV off the table for months and make it just about reconnecting and being intimate in other ways that are lower stakes for the wife and for you, lower guilt for you. Sometimes I recommend people take penetrative sex off the menu, even if there's nothing else going on, even if there's nothing else wrong, because we can fall into penetrative grooves that are limiting where we're not being creative or inventive or really tapping into who our partners are besides penetrative objects or penetrating objects. Sometimes just taking penetrative, any sort of penetrative, butt, twat, mouth off the menu and figuring out new ways to reconnect with your partner, particularly in the context of a monogamous relationship, pays dividends. There are real benefits to that. My condolences to your wife on the loss of her mother, to you on the loss of your mother-in-law, and congratulations to you both on the birth of your child. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old this white pansexual female from New York City living abroad in Central America with kind of a weird problem. So I feel like I should preface this by saying that I've been sober and in recovery from drugs and alcohol for just about two and a half years now. And after taking some time off from dating and sex, I only recently started easing back into that pool. Like I said, I'm living abroad to surf and do yoga in between a major career change back home living my best life here in paradise. And I just started dating and regularly sleeping with a really cute local guy that I like. Long story short, I've been waking him up in the middle of the night and initiating sex with him all while I'm still asleep. Sometimes I remember pieces of it the next day, but for the most part, I only know what he tells me, which is that I physically initiate sex, verbally interact with him, laugh. One time I told him to shut the fuck up, which definitely sounds like me all normally as though I'm awake, except that I'm asleep and I have little to no recollection of it the next day. Now for a normie, this might be just like a quirky, funny story, but for me, it kicks up a ton of stuff from my past. While still active in my addiction, like many of us addicts and alcoholics, I constantly had sex in blackouts and would come to in the middle of places and beds with people I didn't remember or recognize. And also my last long-term relationship before I got sober was with a guy who would regularly have sex with me either while I was blacked out or already passed out asleep. 
I know this guy I'm seeing now is not that guy from the past. And the situation's really not the same, but the same feelings of powerlessness and lack of control and memory are frightening to me. And while I'm not using drugs and alcohol, it also brings back those same feelings of shame and remorse and guilt. I explained all of this to the guy and he was really open and receptive to everything I said and thanked me for trusting him with all of that. He asked me what he could do and how I would like him to make sure that I'm awake and conscious, consciously consenting, not just sleep talking as I've been doing. But I don't know. And surely the onus for this does not rest solely on him, right? I told my sponsor about it back home and she's having me work through my feelings the 12 step way, you know, like meditate on it, write it out, et cetera. She suggested in the meantime that I don't have him spend the night, which kind of sucks. So then I called my best friend in Austin and asked her what we always ask each other, which is what would Dan Savage say? At one point, I tossed out the idea of some kind of light restraints, but I feel like handcuffing myself to the bed in order to keep from sleep fucking him is kind of extreme and probably not the safest option. He doesn't have to fuck you when you initiate sex with him in the middle of the night. There is another option, which is to gently discourage you to hold you and lay with you and put you back to bed, lay you back down, wait it out until you're asleep again. So seems to me that there are options between him having to fuck you and you initiate sex in the middle of the night and him not being allowed to be in your house with you in the middle of the night, lest you initiate sex. And that's just an understanding that you seem to have sexomnia and it's not related to the blackout sex that you were having in the past. Sexomnia is its own independent thing, a form of, quoting now, non-rapid eye movement, N-R-E-M, parasomnia, similar to sleepwalking, that causes people to engage in sexual acts such as masturbation, fondling intercourse, sometimes rape, when they're asleep. That's your problem now. It has nothing to do with your drinking. You need to, I'm not your sponsor, and I'm not a 12-stepper, but it seems to me you need to take a hatchet to the association you're making to the drunken blackout sex you had when you were abusing drugs and alcohol and the middle of the night, not fully conscious or unconscious sex you're initiating with a trusted partner in a completely sober, but unconscious state, two different things, two very different things. You can handcuff yourself to the bed. It is possible to have sexual intercourse with someone who is handcuffed to something and is initiating sex with you. So that's not the solution that you seem to think it is, but could be fun. But I would try that in the middle of the day. If I were you. So the rule for your boyfriend, this lovely local guy that you're banging when he spends the night is no middle of the night sex. We have sex during the day when we're both wide awake, when we initiate in a fully conscious state, any sex that I attempt to initiate with you after we've gone to sleep in a dark room in the middle of the night. Yeah, I'm not awake. Don't take me up on it. I'm not going to feel good about it in the morning. In fact, if you take me up on that kind of offer again, I'm not saying you did anything wrong when you took me up on those kinds of offers in the past because we didn't understand exactly what was going on, but you don't have my consent to fuck me when I initiate sex with you in the middle of the night when I am going to be, past as prologue, asleep. So we have sex in the middle of the day when we're both wide the fuck awake, maybe right after surfing. Hey, Dan. I'm a straight polyamorous guy from Croatia. I often heard you talk about DADT, or don't ask, don't tell. I believe you described it as an arrangement for partners who can't be monogamous, but also don't like to hear about their partner having sex with others. Do what you need to do, just don't tell me about it, right? 
I tried this and it failed miserably. I'm trying not to project my own situations, but I was wondering how this could ever work, especially with partners who are living together. Hiding the fact that you have other partners sounds impossible to me. Every time you look at your phone and smile, every time you talk about your day and have a weird inconsistency, your partner will just know. Either your partner is okay with it or they aren't. I can't see why consensually hiding this could ever be a good idea. But I remember you said that it worked for many people. Can you and some of your listeners shed some light on the logistics of this arrangement? A DADT, that's Don't Ask, Don't Tell arrangement, does two things. It allows two people who maybe made a monogamous commitment, maybe would prefer to have a monogamous commitment, but monogamy isn't working for them, and one or both partners are willing to tolerate a little outside sexual contact if it means saving the relationship, if it's the only way to save the relationship. But one or perhaps both partners don't want to be tormented by the mental images of their partner fucking somebody else. They just don't want to know. And so you don't tell them. The other thing that DADT accomplishes, it really puts a lid on it. It really limits the opportunity to have sex with others or many others because you're only going to be able to have sex with someone else at a time or in a place or with a person where it's not going to get back to your primary partner, where the telling isn't going to be done by you or an incriminating text message or a creepy smile on your face when you're getting sexts from this other person you're fucking. DADT doesn't really work with the having of other partners, ongoing sexual romantic connections with others. That doesn't work well with DADT because it's hard to avoid the tell in a situation like that. It's hard to avoid the tell if you've got another girlfriend or three in your community. That's going to get back to your partner. Part of DADT is not just I don't tell you, but circumstance doesn't tell you either. Friends, coworkers, emails, Instagram posts, they don't tell you either. Nobody tells you. I have sex with others, maybe. You have sex with others, maybe. But never with someone where it's going to get back to you in any way. And some people are comfortable with that, not just because they don't want to be tormented by the mental images, but because it really limits the opportunities to have sex with others. It's going to keep it, the outside sexual contact, to a low roar, to a minimum. If what you want is the ability to have concurrent sexual and romantic relationships, secondary partners, then yeah, DADT is not going to work for you. DADT is like a rarely used once in a while, all the planets aligned hall pass. It is not polyamory. DADT works well for people who are invested in appearing to be socially monogamous, even if they know that their relationship isn't sexually monogamous. You described yourself at the top of the call as polyamorous. I don't know very many people who consider themselves poly who smile on or adopt the DADT model. It's better for people who wish they were capable of monogamy but can't do it, not for people who identify or would like to identify or like to be polyamorous. Hey, Dan. I am in my late 30s, and I recently lost my husband to cancer. And I am attracted to my husband's best friend. I wanted to say that I'm in love with my husband's best friend, but that's not quite right. 
sometimes when we're together, I can't bear how attracted to him I am. And he is married. They're open. Their relationship is not open. And sometimes it's just unbearable for me to be around him. We are in a band together, which makes things complicated. I have not told him how I feel. I can't. I won't. I was with him and his wife tonight, and I love them both dearly as friends. Um, but when I'm around him, I feel this complicated sort of, I just want to fuck you kind of feeling. Any advice you have would be great. I'm I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. How long? Uh, you said it was recently that you lost your husband to cancer. How recently? Uh, just less than eight months. Oh, I, I'm so sorry. Yeah. You know, it's it's perfectly understandable why you would feel this intense desire to connect with his best friend. Yeah. Because there was this intimacy between your husband and, you know, his best friend. And it's almost a way of getting to be intimate with your husband again. And, and psychologically, it, you know, it's so obvious why your erotic imagination, but also your grief would go there. Exactly. But your body can't go there. Right, <laughs> and I, I think which my mind knows. Right, right. yeah, I didn't. You it didn't sound like you were calling for me to strategize with you about how to get into this guy's pants. Um, right. It, it, I think it's compounded by the fact that you're in a band together. That you guys make music together because there's a physical intimacy to making music with someone. It's about the heartbeat. Yeah. It's about that kind of rhythm. It's about breathing together, and there's this aural intimacy and this physical connection. It's a physical connection, even though bodies aren't touching when people create music together and for your desire to, to, to connect intimately with your husband again through his friend, perhaps if that's what's going on with your grief. And then to have that really the, the temptation compounded by the fact that you are physically intimate with this man already in this really personal way on a regular basis. Right. My advice would be to get out of the band for a little bit. It's the sort of like group band yeah. that you can step back from. Do, do you know what I mean? Like there are a lot of, I, I don't know if you guys are in a touring band together or if you're in a hobby band together. No, I mean, so essentially you're, you're advising that like I limit the amount of torture that I inflict on myself unnecessarily. At this time, for, for a few months, <laughs> you know, if, particularly if the crush over the last eight months is growing and, and the desire is yeah. becoming more intense, that you just take a step back and you're not being physically intimate with him in this aural way right. for the moment. And in, yeah. in, in that time, go find somebody that you can fuck your way through this part of the grief and, and that you can recon that you can connect with sexually who isn't a dear friend married to a dear friend who both of whom probably ache for you. They must ache right. for you. Yeah. I mean, in no way, Am I seeking to fuck my way through this problem? Oh, no, with with, um, with your, I'm not saying fuck your way through the problem with the, your husband's late husband's best friend. Saying, no, I know, but like I, the the thing is, I don't want to do that with anyone. I think I think kind of thinking about it in terms of whether or not it's this, um, like a growing issue is a useful way to think about it because the fact is it's not. I find it actually cyclical. I suspect it's related to my hormones, mm -hmm. um, so kind of unsurprising. But definitely, there is a heart connection there and. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, like he's my access point now to my husband and I suspect I'm the same for him. And so there is this intimacy. Additionally, 
um, playing music together is something that is new for me. And um, it's something that my husband taught me to do that my husband used to do with his best friend. And so kind of the line that I've developed is that I hate that his death has been the birth of anything, but it has, you know? And so it's, it's also like fueling me um, to be creative and to like get into this flow state um, and to sort of be near him in a way, you know? Uh, So the whole thing is kind of heartbreaking. And like the last thing that I want to do is step away from it. So I guess I called to complain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sometimes it helps just to complain. And if you can't step away from it, the reasons you just uh, ticked off, I think are terrific reasons to ignore my advice or that part of my advice. I'm not telling you just to go fuck some rando and fuck it out. I know. I'm telling you what I'm suggesting though, is if you can, you know, if all of your erotic sort of, you know, unconscious desire and we don't necessarily choose where desire flows is, is going toward this man because you're in his proximity so often right now to put yourself, you know, in the range of other men to find other places that you can go and spend time and and other people and included that you can spend time with that, you know, sometimes the best way to get over an inappropriate crush is to get a new one. Not saying go fuck somebody you could take or leave. I'm saying get out there in the world, move through the world and encounter someone that you can feel as strongly for or as much as uh, the, the sort of desire and the crush that you're feeling right now for your husband's best friend, feel that for somebody else and then return to your husband's best friend to feel that sense of intimacy and connection through him to your husband and his memory and what he meant to you and what he means to your, his best friend. You know, sometimes when in our grief, we want to be with people who are hurting just as much as we're hurting and yeah. and aching for the same reason. And if you, if you went through with it and I know, you know, this, you have no desire to actually, you know, make a pass. You would, you could cost yourself that connection to your late husband. Exactly. Right. And, right. And, and so you can't, you can't do that. You know, every time if I was with them together, yeah. every time you're with them together, him, and his wife, every time you begin to feel that intense desire for him, you need to force yourself to only look at her. Mm-hmm. Because she's... I 100% agree. She's your close friend, too. She's connected to your husband, too. And you, you know, if... The, there's just no way to imagine this playing out if there's actual contact without it going south. You lose both of them, and you lose a little bit more of your husband, and you've already lost him and so much. Yeah. No, believe me, I have already gamed that out. I, ironically, I'm actually on my way to pick her up right now. <laughs> um, you know, I don't. We all spend a lot of time together. I don't know, and I'm just going to throw this out there. And this, this is me being crazy, and you should probably disregard this. But my first impulse was, you need to confide in someone about this. And what about her? Uh, I have thought of that. With the um, whole framing of it being, this is never going to happen. This is completely inappropriate. This is rooted in my grief and my desire to reconnect with my husband. But I have these inappropriate right. thoughts. And not I need you to help police me, but I need to. I need you to know this thing. I need you to know this thing because this thing is never going to happen. And yeah. people get inappropriate crushes. And I kind of have an inappropriate crush on your wonderful husband right now. And do you know any other nice right. guys? Because you obviously picked a great one. Is there anyone else you want to introduce me to? Not to like keep me away from like eating your husband and stealing your husband. And that's not going to happen. But I'm I'm feeling these inappropriate feelings, and I and maybe I need yeah. your support to. I mean, potentially that would help. Like right now, I'm kind of the person who's sort of, even though I have like 
nothing, I also kind of have it all, right? I get my secret crush and I get to like have the intimacy um, and I get to have like the only little piece of my husband that I can have. And I'm just, I'm reminded of um, when my friend wanted to cheat on her husband or she was debating cheating on her husband, but she didn't want to tell him and she was really stressed out about it. And I was like, what if you just told him this is happening? What would happen, right? But the fear is that you lose the thing you have. So I think this, the same way that if I actually like- talking about? No, it's a different friend, okay. but like the same, the same feeling that like, if I actually were to fuck this guy, which again, I don't want to do, obviously it would destroy all of the relationships. I kind of fear that happening, even if I confide. Right. You know? but that's, um, that is, so, that is the risk that she would never feel comfortable yeah. with you around again. And it would cost you this connection and this intimacy if you disclosed. So that was me. Like I said, I, I preface that with, here's me being crazy. You know, here's like, if we lived in a world where people could like, hear that someone desired their partner, even if they had a monogamous commitment and their partner was never going to sleep with anyone else, right. and never sleep with else, but hear that without feeling paranoid and insecure. But a lot of people can't feel anything but paranoid or insecure if someone in their social circle, particularly someone who's at a point in her life where everyone aches for you and all sympathy is with yeah. you, that that could make the paranoia and insecurity even more intense for your friend because because why wouldn't her husband want to give you whatever it is that you needed right now to feel better? And so, yeah, maybe don't disclose. Like I said, that was me being fucking crazy. Find somebody else that you can confide in about this so that you don't have to bear this alone, even the inappropriateness of it and the riskiness of yeah. it. I will do that. Yeah. I wish that I, I wish that I had more faith in this person that she would be able to hold that for me. But um, something that's very true about grief is that you'll need more of people than they can give you. That's a really smart way of saying it. Thanks. I appreciate, you know, you letting me confide in you. Oh, well, I'm honored that you would confide in me and I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss. I appreciate it. Hi, Dan. I'm a, um, 30 year old woman living in Seattle and I've been dating this woman now for about four months. And so I, last night we were going out to celebrate my birthday and she was supposed to meet me there from her house and my dog was at her house because we were going to be going there afterward. And so she ended up not going out because she wanted to stay home with my dog and this has actually been worrying me now for a while because I'm concerned that she likes my dog more than me and our relationship. We have a very healthy sexual relationship, great radical transparency, very respectful. But in the end, I'm not sure what what's more important to her, the companionship she has with my dog or with me. Your girlfriend stood you up on your birthday so she could spend a quiet night at home with your dog. Yeah. Why? I realized it was just last night when you called, but why is she still your girlfriend exactly? Somebody four months in who stands you up on your birthday so that they can spend a quiet night at home reading or watching Berlin Babylon or with your dog or whatever else. That person is in a radical way being transparent about how little they care about you. They're radically transparently not that into you to borrow the overused nineties phrase. Yeah, this is over and you need to end it. She kind of ended it. She kind of said, please break up with me. 
when she blew off your birthday to spend the night at home alone with your dog. Sounds like the kind of person who makes themselves intolerable until you dump them. And this was perhaps the first salvo. I don't know. I wasn't present for the first four months. You haven't ticked off everything that's gone on in your relationship. Maybe she's fired other shots across the bow that she's letting you know that you're going to need to dump her. And the assholery will increase over time until you do that thing and you dump her. Just make sure your dog is at your apartment the night you dump her. Unless, and I hate to introduce ambiguity when I'm ordering someone to break up with somebody, unless there's some extenuating circumstance here. Was it a quiet candlelight dinner for two and your girlfriend stood you up and you sat there alone in a restaurant and had dinner all by yourself on your birthday? Or were you having some kind of rager party in a bar and there were going to be 40 of your closest friends there and your girlfriend was probably going to get 11 seconds of FaceTime with you and she texted you or called you and said, you know what, let's you and I hang out at home when you get back. I have a cake here for you and some champagne so we can have some private time together because I'm not an extrovert and a bar environment isn't my environment. Unless there's some extenuating circumstance like that, which if it was like that, you should have included those details in your call. And the fact that you omitted them from your call means you were working the ref. You're going to have to dump her. Hey Dan, I am a lesbian on the West coast, um, mid thirties. And I'm calling for sex advice, not necessarily for myself, but actually for my pet. So I'm a dog owner. Um, my dog is eight years old. He has a lot of energy. He's still very much a puppy at heart. And when I take him to dog parks, um, sometimes he likes to engage in a little humping action. And um, sometimes it's just, you know, a, a little bit of mounting, but sometimes it gets pretty raunchy. Um, my question is about other dog parents and their reactions to this. So sometimes, I mean, people have been so offended by my dog humping their dog that they have lashed out at me or told me I need to leave. Um, I don't know what to, I try to stop the behavior. I try to yell his name and, you know, ask him to come. Or sometimes if he's close to me, I will pull him off the other dog. Um, I just don't know how to teach him to stop. Um, and it's not something I can really train out of him unless I socialize him. And I, I really don't want to just keep him at home and keep him away from other dogs because he really enjoys being social. He's very friendly. He needs the exercise. Um, so, yeah, what do I do? Are these other dog parents being sex negative and I should just kind of laugh it off? I try to tell them like, oh, you know, sometimes he humps, um, but, you know, usually other dogs will correct him. Um, most of the time they're like, yeah, yeah, just being dogs. But then as soon as it starts happening, I have like a total freak out and everybody else has a freak out. And I feel like my dog is some kind of sexual predator. Please help. Sounds like Harvey Weinstein's career was reincarnated as your dog. Dogs hump. I, I'm not a dog fan. I am a dog owner. We have, I have, I live with, I tolerate, I put up with two dogs. One a tiny 16-year-old blind deaf toy poodle and one a horse-sized standard poodle. And yeah, I've seen them hump things. They hump things. That's what dogs do. I thought dog owners were generally kind of tolerant about the humpery that dogs engage in, particularly in dog parks where dogs get to run around off-leash and interact and 
doggy dog ways with each other. If I were you, I would continue to go to the dog park. And when people freak out because your dog humped their dog, I would just laugh it the fuck off. I would intervene, pull my dog off their dog as you're doing, perhaps take my dog to a trainer. If that's something that can be trained out of a dog, but I wouldn't worry about it too much. You also have the option and it's been effective at our house to keep the dog from tackling people as they come in the front door of getting a shock collar. I believe they're controversial among people who like dogs, but I don't. So not controversial at my house for dogs or anybody else. Uh, hi, Dan. So I'm calling because I have a bit of a, of a, of a, of a funny problem. So I've been dating this girl for about uh, eight months now, and it's great. Uh, I really, really like her. So, you know, we're, we're doing well. And whenever we spend the night together, we tended to, uh, we, we, we do it at her place just because I have a roommate and she doesn't, and that's just how it works out. And that's also pretty good. But she does have this dog, this little cute poodle, I think, it's, uh, a toy poodle who I love. He's, he's pretty cool. And yeah, and that, that's so, that all sounds fine. But in the past two weeks, my girlfriend, she threw me this idea of maybe letting the dog in while we have sex. Before, she would just close the door on him, and he'd whine for like a minute before finding some place else to nap, which is all right. But she threw me this idea, as I said, um, of having him in the room, and I said, sure. In theory, you know, that's it's nothing to me. That's fine. And I'm sure she's getting some, uh, you know, sweet exhibitionist thrills out of it. Yeah. The thing is, the dog does put me off a little. I think it's a little weird. He just normally just lies down on the bed uh, and just chills. Um, every now and again, you know, he would paw one of us for some pets, or for, for some pets, which is also pretty cute, but also not very helpful. And I'm just, like, I guess my question is, like, what are the sort of moral and ethical implications of this? Like, the dog doesn't know what's going on, uh, probably, um, but it seems a little messed up to be basically using him like this. And I've not brought this up with my girlfriend yet because my gestures, as you can maybe tell, are kind of half-formed at the moment. But I'm just wondering, like, uh, if you could maybe lend me your insight about, you know, uh, involving, involving your pets with your sex life, which kind of sounds weird when you put it that way. If your girlfriend is getting some sort of sweet exhibitionist thrill out of having sex in front of her dog, seems to me that you want to put her out of the room. Or you want to put yourself out of the room. You're imparting to your girlfriend a motive here that just is kind of blowing my mind. You're assuming because she wants to let the dog in the room that she gets off on the dog being in the room. And that's a major leap. Unless there's some evidence that the sex is more pleasurable for your girlfriend or she is incorporating the dog somehow into the sex that you're having in a real way. Even if it's not a physical way, but there's some eye contact connection that's making her orgasms more intense because her beloved toy poodle is present. I wouldn't impute that motive to your girlfriend. That's fucking crazy. You need to have a little conversation with your girlfriend. I think your girlfriend just can't stand to let the dog whine outside the door, that she feels bad for the dog, not that she feels good or better or the sex is better with the dog in the room, but that she just doesn't have it in her heart to let her poor little toy poodle 
whine for a minute and then stalk off somewhere else in the apartment and feel sad as the dog finds somewhere else to rest. People who really like dogs, and I'm married to one of those people, sometimes they're crazy. Sometimes they really worry about their dogs having a big sad that the dog probably isn't having. The dog's just found somewhere else in the apartment or the house to go lick their butt. So, yeah, there's nothing wrong with letting the dog sit on the bed. Our dogs have seen things that would kill some people. Rick Santor and Mike Pence, Mike Pence's wife, mother. Our dogs have seen things that would stop all three of their hearts. Perhaps we should send them a video. And it's not going to harm the dog. And unless your girlfriend is somehow physically communicating to you that the sex is better with the dog there, I can't imagine that she is getting any sort of exhibitionist thrill. She is just more at peace because she doesn't have to split her focus between the sex she's having with you and her concern for her beloved toy poodle who she thinks is having a sad somewhere else in the apartment after he stops whining and walks away. Really, either solution is a workable one. Let the dog wander off after whining for a minute if Unless it breaks your girlfriend's heart or let the dog in the room and the dog is not going to be harmed. Dogs have been watching humans fuck for 30,000 years for as long as there have been dogs. Dogs have been watching humans fuck to no ill effect. Thus concludes the dog whisperer section of today's show. No more dog questions, Nancy. I'm done. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to talk with Alana Macy, a cultural critic, essayist, and author of the pop culture criticism collection, All the Lives I Want, essays about my best friends who happen to be famous strangers. You can read her writing regularly in the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Vice, Allure, The Guardian, and many other outlets where she explores topics like identity, culture, labor, gender, and the various intersections of all of the above. Alana, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, I, I wanted to invite you on because there's something going on in Washington, D.C. You know, we all have basically been able to check out and let D.C. run on autopilot. We haven't had to contact our senators or representatives really even once or twice in the last year because everything's so awesome. But there's an issue sort of roaring through Congress right now that people need to get on their phones. People need to write an email. And it's called the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act of 2017 or SESTA. And it's a problem. Now, nobody, nobody's pro-sex trafficking, but cest is a problem. And you wrote a piece for Allure.com unpacking why. For listeners who aren't familiar with SESTA, can you tell us what it is and then tell us what the problem with it is? Absolutely. So um, I think the first problem with SESTA is, of course, um, the title itself, which anyone reads um, and hears, you know, oh, like, this is against sex trafficking. Like, of course I'm on board. Like, because that's a sort of conversation stopper. If it's allegedly to stop trafficking, um, you know, people get on this, like, by any means necessary um, platform and can't really hear the uh, legislative details of it. So the legislative details of it are um, actually pretty old. Manifestations of this bill have come up routinely. So one of the things that it hopes to do is amend the uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And so this is kind of wonky tech stuff, but basically that's considered one of the most important laws uh, to govern the Internet because it says that uh, if you are the owner or host of a website, you cannot be 
held liable for the content that people post on it if you make a good faith effort to eliminate, uh, you know, criminal activity on it or mm-hmm. uh, violations of it. So that in practice means that people are allowed to post things on uh, Facebook, on Twitter, on you know, Amazon reviews, on Yelp, and indeed on websites that uh, primarily are used for uh, communicating uh, commercial sexual activities as available through advertisements and connecting to uh, communities who are in the sex trade to mm-hmm. their best practices. Like a lot of these places sort of coexist in the same digital spaces. And so, um, so, the so they want to, they want to, am- they want to amend this law that really protects everyone uh, by d- doing a special carve out for communicating on someone's platform about uh, sex work. Exactly. And, and criminalizing and it, that. And, and a lot of people out there, some people who are anti-sex work are probably thinking, well, that's good. We shouldn't have uh, people uh, selling sex online and whatever we can do to eliminate that is for, the, is for the better because sex work is dangerous and people shouldn't be doing it. The paradox, of course, is when you drive people who do sex work off online platforms, you're making them less safe. And that's the huge thing that people don't fully understand is that um, an online advertisement, uh, in a lot of the sort of, uh, you know, very disingenuous anti-trafficking discourses, they, uh, they talk about like having an online ad as if it is, you know, only the most prestigious escorts who, um, you know, have like a thousand dollar an hour services and like, you know, just constantly like drink champagne and like, you know, give an occasional blowjob for $800 and then like return to Bloomingdale's and it's like no like people know how to put ads on the internet they're not that expensive it's not that hard everyone has smartphones even people who are you know transitionally homeless who are you know at the brink of poverty and having the ability to post your own ad means that you can communicate uh both boundaries and uh and like location times and communicate to other people like hey this is where I'm going this is who I'm meeting like if I'm not back by x time something's wrong and um, also just sort of use uh, various tools like a uh, bad client list to run their email address. I, I want to drill down on that, that particular issue because what we've seen criminalized in some places and what SESTA would recriminalize or make worse or reemphasize the criminalization of is platforms where sex workers communicate with each other about uh, best practices, about bad clients, uh, give each other heads up, uh, and share often hard-won knowledge about how to do sex work without being exploited or harmed or uh, subjected to violence. And this is something that SESTA and other efforts to quote-unquote end trafficking online wants to stop people from doing, wants to stop sex workers from communicating with each other uh, in ways that make sex workers safer. And, and that's what always blows my mind about anti-sex work activism uh, and polemicists is they're constantly saying that they're in this to protect people from the harms of sex work. And yet everything they do magnifies the harms of sex work for people doing sex work. It, it, it's so offensive on its face. Is um, it's true. And the thing that's also really important that we've been um, trying to emphasize in the campaign to address the harm caused by sex is, 
so much of the opposition who, you know, is very like, you know, wants to eradicate all forms of um, all forms of the sex trade because they identify any form of um, uh, commercial sex as inherently degrading and dangerous. Oh, they they, they identify they it all as trafficking. Like, trafficking has become this dirty <laughs> word. And now any form of sex work, they just want to put the trafficking label on it. And they also are shooting themselves in the foot by shutting down potential uh, advertising sites because if you, um, like, uh, you know, a great example of this is the site um, Red Book, which shut down. It's sort of a microcosm of what would potentially happen to some of the bigger hubs of sex work advertising, like Backpage. Um, Red Book was this sort of, like, you know, model for how advertising and community engagement could like mitigate dangers and harms and also work to identify uh, victims of sexual exploitation and trafficking. Mm -hmm. Because like, if you believe an ad is like, like, for example, if a client went to, you know, like saw an ad, uh, you know, responded to it and then witnessed interactions or had suspicions that the person uh, was uh, under coercion or was being threatened, that is, like that's like a it's a it's a hot lead and to eliminate the opportunity for people to have those ads up and like have them be a piece of evidence that leads to finding trafficking victims and you know hopefully addressing the uh like harms caused to them um and you know getting them out of that situation is something that sex workers are more adept at doing and who, uh, you know, approach victims with profoundly less stigma, who do not re-traumatize them and force them to talk about the the experiences they have, because that's another issue is people want to sort of put people into like, you're trafficked, or you're like the happiest hooker in the world that's never had anything bad happen to you. When really there is a lot of, you know, there's those crossover experiences and going in and out of those situations. Mm -hmm. But there's also just uh, an empathy that we experience that having ever done commercial sex work, uh, whether under coercion, exploitation, extremely limited options, or um, of your own free will means you are heavily stigmatized and heavily criminalized. And it makes people scared to go to authorities to access institutional resources that would help them get out of it. The Freedom Network is one of the biggest anti-trafficking networks, and it is the biggest anti-trafficking network operating in the United States. And they have reports um, regularly that the most underutilized resource for the anti-trafficking movement is sex workers themselves who know how to stop an issue and help someone out. Sex workers themselves who, who who can't participate in the anti-trafficking quote-unquote movement if they are labeled as trafficked themselves or accused of being traffickers if they are doing consensual sex work of their own free will and, and doing it independently. They too get accused of trafficking. It's like the young kid who takes, you know, underage minor who takes a picture of his own genitals and then is accused of uh, trafficking in child pornography, being at once the child pornographer and the victim of the child pornographer himself. Uh, it, it's it's crazy. And the people I know who consensually do sex work of their own free will, uh, some people through economic coercion wind up doing sex work and then find it works for them and it's right for them and they become sort of the people who are doing it of their own free will and free choice after coming to it initially in economic distress and 
yeah, we should live in a world where no one does sex work under because under economic distress, then we need a universal basic income, access to education for all for free, and universal health care. That'll do a lot to end people doing sex work uh, for economic reasons. But I would want to just flag what you said there, that the, the, the largest untapped resource in keeping people out of sex work who are being coerced or who are minors is other sex workers who are doing it for all the right reasons or of their own free will, who watch their career or their their choice be stigmatized because of the people who are doing it for the wrong reasons or because they're being uh, coerced or pressured or doing it under duress. And if sex workers who could be a part of the solution as opposed to being attacked, but then you have to accept that sex work is something that some people are going to do of their own free will and empower people to do it and respect people who make that choice of their own free will and then listen to them when they say, here are some people or I suspect that this a uh, person is under duress and being able to go to the authorities, but they can't go to the authorities if everyone is being threatened with imprisonment. But getting back to SESTA, th- this law would carve out a major exception in a, in a law that protects all of us uh, and our freedom online and, and protects everybody who has a blog that accepts comments from yeah. <laughs> from being persecuted or, or or penalized or prosecuted for what other people said on your site, but it also does nothing to make sex workers safer. Does nothing to end trafficking. Absolutely nothing. If anything, the the issue that people don't fully recognize is that um, there's this sort of like double speak about uh, like you know who the traffickers are and like you know how like cunning they are and like there's this sort of ghoulish caricature of what a trafficker is and he is you know at once like stupid enough to you know you know according to all of these like you know public service announcements like advertise you know like child available for sex and chains online which is not the reality um but then it's also like too stupid in their minds to like figure out another way to not use these formal channels of advertising to you know coerce the person who is being sexually exploited um, into unsafe working conditions. We saw this when um, Redbook went down in the Bay Area that people were forced to work on the streets or they were uh, like the sort of influx of uh, sex workers to the streets who were formerly independent, who were not working under coercion, didn't have the skill set necessary to uh, do street work independently. And then were sort of like, you know, like they needed to have like pimps and you know traffickers um, in order to continue to do their work. So the message here for even for people who don't support sex work, who think it should be illegal and think no one should be doing it, you even you shouldn't support SESTA because it just makes the sex work that you think should be illegal because it's dangerous more dangerous. It is not the solution. Where, where can people read more about SESTA and uh, where can people find out what they can do to, to help uh, stop SESTA? Okay, so um, it's coming up for a vote in the next week. And so one of the major things that folks can do is um, call their senator's office, something that has been heartening um, as someone who's been a member of the sex work, uh, you know, activism community for some time. And we scream into the ether a lot and never hear anything from anyone uh, in power. And like, turns out like the ether turned on its voicemail and they have heard us this time. And staffers have actually been 
far more responsive. People know how to call their senators now because they've been outraged for the last year. Like they have the muscle memory to call. And so we just need them to call until it until it comes to the floor for a vote and then call thereafter to uh, hold those representatives accountable every day until the harms are mitigated and it is rectified, which is going to be, which would be years and there would be untold damage. The article, uh, Alana's article at Allure.com is titled, If You Care About Sex Trafficking, Trust People in the Sex Trades, Not Celebrities. Get on Allure.com, read Alana Macy's article. Also, if you want to know what's going on in the sex workers' rights movement, the sex worker community, follow some sex workers on Twitter. Follow Mistress Matisse. Follow Jiz Lee. Follow Maggie McNeil. There's a lot of smart people on Twitter communicating with a broader communicating with the broader public about sex workers' rights, about issues that impact sex workers, and we should all be listening to them. They are the most informed and most knowledgeable people on these issues. Alana Macy, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good afternoon. You too. Hey, Dan and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I'm a mid-30s gay man living in the Midwest. I've been with my husband for almost six years and married for a year and a half. Two weeks ago before our wedding, my husband told me he didn't want to actually get the marriage license. We worked it out and got married, but two weeks ago, he told me that he is concerned that there's someone out there who might be a better fit for him, and he worries our future won't be happy together. He states there isn't someone he has in mind, but he would feel like he was missing out if he didn't try and look. We're in an open relationship and have been since the beginning. We started with a lot of rules and slowly rode those back as our needs and desires and trust changed and grew. I know part of the problem is our libido mismatch, but I assumed us being completely open was helping to take care of his needs. I've tried explaining how, quote, the one doesn't exist and that you have to round up. I do feel like he is, quote, my one, and I've asked him, are you really going to leave a 0.65 to try and find a 0.75? Do you have any advice for how to help him be comfortable with rounding up and working on the relationship? A 0.65 who tells you right before the wedding that they don't want to get the marriage license and then goes on to tell you after the wedding that they're not sure that you're the person they want to spend the rest of their life with because there might be someone out there better for them. Your 0.65 kind of dropped to a 0.55 at that moment. And it's a lot harder to round a 0.55 up to one. And I'm surprised you went through with the wedding. It sounds to me like he had a terrible case of cold feet and he regrets this marriage. Yeah. There's probably someone out there who's, better for him. There are 3.54 billion other men on the planet, hundreds of millions of other gay men on the planet. There's probably someone out there who might be a better match for you too. Might be a 0.66 out there who hasn't 0.56 himself by saying assholey things. There's always potentially someone better out there. It's one of the torments of this technological age is that everybody gets online and gets on Tinder, even if they're partner and then starts looking around at all of their options who aren't really their options necessarily because just because they're on Tinder and you're on Tinder doesn't mean they want you necessarily or just because you walk into a bar and they're there and you make eye contact for a second doesn't mean that there's possibility of a long-term committed relationship there. But someone who looks at you and thinks, yeah, no, someone who looks at you and thinks that and then tells you about it, that's a kind of cruelty disqualifies someone from the rounding up process. You have to round up someone who demonstrates to you that they wish to be 
rounded the fuck up that they know they're not the one because no one is the one, but they wish they were the one for you. And they're near enough that maybe you will do them the favor of rounding them the rest of the way up as they are doing you the favor of rounding you the rest of the way up. But someone who tells you these cruel things and says these sorts of things that are so prima facie, just on their face, vicious in this way that it's almost like being injected with cancer cells that are going to grow into a tumor and spread and kill. Not you personally, but this relationship. I don't see a future for you two. Get thee to a couple's counselor, go. You can work on this marriage. You can't work on a marriage with someone who wants out of it, though. You can't work on a marriage with someone who's sabotaging it. And maybe I'm attaching too much importance to these two cruel fucking things that he's said to you. But he clearly wasn't sure he wanted to marry you and clearly has regrets. And you know what? Everyone has regrets. Stephen Sondheim, company, you ever sorry you married Barb? You're always sorry. You're always grateful. There's ambivalence at the heart of every long-term committed relationship because you've chosen someone and shut down other potential choices, other potential matches, other potential relationships. And if you can't look at the person that you chose and think it was worth it, the good and the bad and the ugly, the sickness shit and the health shit and the good times and the bad times and worth it still, if your partner can't look at you and feel that same way, Hard to see that lasting. And it's hard to see with what he said to you, the cruel things that he said to you, it's hard to see that this isn't going to escalate over time, that it's not going to get worse. He's pushing you away and wishing you would go. He's given you a couple of big shoves that from the tone of your voice don't seem to have registered with you. And there's probably bigger shoves coming your way. Like I said, get thee to a couple's counselor. Go. But you need to have a really honest conversation. You need to get with a couple's counselor who can call him on the carpet and make him say exactly what he's really thinking. And you need to hear what he's really thinking. He's hoping that you will read into these statements how he really feels. And clearly you're not doing that. So he's going to have to tell you how he really feels. And it's possible for someone to be your 0.65 without you being their 0.65. It's possible for someone to be close enough for you to round up but you aren't close enough for them to round up. And that hurts and that sucks and that's so common as to be cliche. Just because they're the right one for you doesn't mean you're the right one for them. But you have it in your heart to meet someone good enough and close enough and then to love them and round them up to the one. You did it for him. Doesn't sound like he deserved it. Doesn't sound like he wanted it. I think in the long run, you're going to have to do it with and for someone else, someone who deserves it, someone who deserves you. Hi, Dan. I'm calling because I need advice on what to do about my friend or more specifically my friend and her husband. I'm 33 years old and I've had this best friend since childhood. When we were younger, she was my most open-minded and wild friend. Now that we're older, she's become much more judgmental and closed-minded. A year or so ago, she married this man who I just think is a total asshole and completely horrible for her. But that's not why I'm calling. My friend's husband has this tendency of saying really horrible things to me 
or about me under his breath. It's always under his breath. It started out pretty mild with him saying things like, you're selfish or nobody likes you. We all cheer for you, you know, when you leave the room. Then it escalated to him saying things like, you're a horrible wife. You're a shit wife. You're the worst wife in the world. It's now gotten to the point where he just calls me a slut or a whore. I'm humiliated and embarrassed when he says these things. And I really don't understand where the whore comments are coming from. I've been with my husband for 15 years, and he's the only man I've ever been with. I'm pretty sure, by most standards, that makes me not a whore. Recently, my husband and I have been having a lot of fun talking about opening up our marriage. We haven't shared this with any of our friends because it's none of their business. But I also don't want to share for fear of being shamed by my so-called best friend and her husband. A few years back, before my husband and I talked about being open, I confided in my friend that I found myself attracted to another man. She judged and shamed me and even blew off my husband's birthday party because she didn't feel comfortable being in the same room as my husband and the man I'm attracted to. I should mention that my husband knows I'm attracted to this other man and has given me permission to sleep with him. I've just chosen not to do so at this time. My friend is also incredibly judgmental and shaming about weed. I love weed, not just for recreational use, but I'm passionately against the war on weed, and I think we need to destigmatize this drug that has so many wonderful helping properties. I should also mention that my friend used to smoke a ton of weed and has dated stoners and dealers in the past. I imagine you'll tell me to dump my friend but we've had a lifetime friendship that I'd like to preserve if it's possible. Also, our friend group is very entwined. I'm best friends with her brother and her cousin, and we share lots of other friends. It would be a very awkward breakup. Dan, do you have any advice for me? At first, I was concerned that your so-called, your words, so-called best friend is married to someone who's an abuser, one of the Chief strategies abusers employ is isolation and your so-called best friend's husband is attempting to drive off his wife's best friend. That's a total abuser move. But your so-called best friend sounds awful, just as awful as this guy. So this is a water-seeks-its-own-level situation. Your best friend is – Awful. Wasn't always awful. Awful now. Maybe one day won't be so awful. Maybe one day we'll come to her senses and leave this awful guy and stop being such a judgmental revisionist history about her own pot-used asshole and be capable of being your friend again. Maybe you'll get to meet your old friend again someday in the future. In the meantime, though, you're just going to have to detach. You don't have to break up. You don't have to draw a line and make your mutual friends and her brother pick sides Just spend less time with her. Be less available. Be busy. He can't call you a slut under his breath and have you hear it if you're not within earshot. Don't be within earshot. Also, when someone does plays these kind of weird games saying incredibly rude things under their breath so that you can hear it, if you can hear it, probably other people can hear it, but nobody wants to be the person who brought it up and made things weirder than they are already in that moment and made things more awkward and uncomfortable than they are already, then the person who's making things awkward and uncomfortable, they want to make that person feel awkward and uncomfortable, but you should. You should say, did you just call me a slut under your breath? Did you just say that I was a bad wife? 
under your breath. I, you know, you're saying those things out loud. You know that I can hear you. You might want to watch that. That's rude. Put it on him. And yeah, you don't have to tell this person, your so-called best friend, about opening up your marriage or about your pot use or about your crushes going forward on people who aren't your husband. You don't have to tell her anything. In fact, you shouldn't tell her anything. She has made it quite clear to you that she is not someone that you can safely confide in. That she is not the supportive friend she once was, of course, is very sad. You don't have to treat someone who is no longer the supportive friend they once were, like the friend they used to be, lest they get the impression that you don't believe them to be the friend they used to be anymore because they have demonstrated to you over and over and over again that they're not that person anymore. But don't burn it all down. Don't nuke it. Don't tell her you're breaking up with her and you're not friends anymore. Continue to interact civilly with her and politely and kindly in your shared social circle and live in hope. That one day she will come to her senses, start smoking pot again, and leave this asshole. I'm calling in response to the getting the cum on the sheets. Dan, you missed the mark so much on that one. It is so much more like a woman squirting. And if my girlfriend was squirting, she better damn well put a towel down on the bed before she does. Because that is a mess. There's also the consideration that women end up taking up more of the housework than men. So maybe he's not being careful and maybe he never takes the incentive to wash the sheets after they get dirty. If she's washing them all the time, yeah, I'd get a little pissy too. Hi, Dan. This is a sex educator from Chicago and I just have a quick correction. On your last episode, you said that fleshlights are made out of silicone. Silicone is a non-porous, hypoallergenic material that's super safe. And I want to be very clear that fleshlights are not made out of silicone. They're made out of cyber skin, which is porous and can trap bacteria. So that means if any listeners out there are using a fleshlight and you want to share it with a sex partner, you need to make sure that sex partner is wearing a condom to keep it safe. Also, if you're using a fleshlight on your own, it's a really good idea to keep it super clean. Uh, you just want to clean it with soap and water, let it air dry, and once it's dry, powder it with cornstarch to keep the texture intact. Hey, Dan. Response to the 46-year-old woman in episode 594 who's having magnificent orgasms. One thing that you didn't mention is that, at least I've had this experience, at 46, my body is so much different and sex is so much better than it ever was. And I don't know, that's just, I think, an age thing. I chalk it up to, I'm far more in touch with my own physical sensations of desire. And when I do get into penetrative sex, it's fucking amazing. And it never was. It's not the difference of the person or even the device, because <laughs> that's been the same for 11 years, but the sex is better. So maybe it's just something about women when they're aging makes it better. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. You can also record your question on your own computer or phone and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. We have some beautiful new Savage Lovecast t-shirts available at savagelovecast.com slash shop. And if you aren't already, you should be a member of our Facebook group. Go to Facebook and search for Savage Love. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Alana Massey on Twitter at Alana Massey. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for having me.